This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Thanks also goes to Harry's for supporting Answers. Get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel. Go to harrys.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hi, Allison. Hello. In this week's episode, Morgan Housel is back to discuss finding your sustainable advantage, whether that's in investing, business, or just life in general. We'll also answer your question about why stocks that beat earnings estimates still get clobbered and take a pop quiz in failure. All that and more in this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers, Answers. And for those of you who have not been listening to the podcast for very long, I should probably introduce you to Morgan Housel. Hi, Morgan. Hi, guys. So, I'm Mor- back. Hey, you are back. So, Morgan used to write for The Fool. Uh, he had a very successful, popular column, and then he left us. Yeah. I'm back, but I'm back. You are back. So, where are you now? So, I work at a private equity venture capital fund called The Collaborative Fund based out of New York. So it's very similar to what The Fool does in terms of buying good businesses that we want to hold for the long time, but it's with young private companies. So either startups that are very young or companies that are a little more established but still private versus buying public equities that trade on a stock exchange. These are just closely held. Other than that, it's pretty much the same thing. It's just going out and looking for great companies that are doing good things, run by good people, and investing in them and holding them for the long run. What's particularly unique is that doing good things aspect, right? I yeah. mean, you are look, they are looking for companies that are going to make the world better. Yeah, and you know that that aspect of it is really trying to find companies that are at the intersection of for profit and for good. Or another way to think about it is the intersection of better for the world and better for the individual. Like when those two things line up, that's when you get a lot of uh, momentum and exponential growth. We have a, a heuristic that we use called the villain test, which is we want to back companies that are doing good in the world, that have a social mission to move society forward, but only those companies in which a self-interested villain would also be attracted to. And the reason why that's important is because a company that's doing good in the world, their their goodness cannot detract from customer experience. Or, or customers, you know, brand, brand or taste. If it's a food company, if your ability to do good in the world detracts from your product, it's always going to be an anchor. Whereas when the two line up with doing good in the world and doing better for the individual, you get a lot of exponential growth. So the best example of that, I think, is, is Tesla, where Tesla has a big environmental mission of reducing carbon emissions and cutting back on on, on oil. But also, if you were just a purely self-interested villain, you would look at it and say, "That's a beautiful car, and I want one." So when those two things line up, that's when you get something that's that's really special. So that's kind of what we look for, which is just a long-winded way of saying yes, we want to back companies that are doing good in the world, but we want that goodness to be a propellant of the company's success and not an anchor. And there are a lot of companies in which their their desire to do good in the world is an anchor. It's a self-inflicted, and they, they don't mind that it's an anchor. Maybe they're going to give away part of their products, or you know, they're uh, intentionally underpricing their products in order to to help out certain segments. And that's that's great. And there are a lot of funds uh, and philanthropies that will back that mission that are they're totally okay if they don't earn a very good investment return. Whereas we're looking for companies whose mission is part of their secret weapon to accelerate them as a business. That sounds like fun. It is fun. I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to the question for today, shall we? It comes from Edward in Australia. 
He writes, This earnings season, we've seen a fair bit of volatility, which is to be expected. However, I was surprised by the number of companies that released great or expected results and immediately dropped in value. Investors not being happy, even with awesome results, suggests to me that a company might be significantly overvalued. And when we see it with heaps of large companies, does this mean the whole market is too overvalued? So, Morgan, when you were at The Fool, you wrote many a column about the quarterly earnings report. Yeah. So, how do you feel about Edward's question? I always think there's a f- there's an irony or almost an oxymoron that most investors expect earnings to beat expectations. And if you're expecting something to beat expectations, like, like, it's, it's like this weird game. <laughs> so the expected numbers of like a company quote unquote beating their numbers, it's not, it's just a, it's a game that's not really rooted in like, oh, well, you beat your numbers, so this should be good for the stock. It's based off of a, those expectations don't really mean anything. It's effectively a made up number that companies and analysts kind of Picked out of thin air, you know, we're going to earn a dollar thirty-two per share. Why not a dollar thirty-one? Right, it's just yeah. the, the numbers themselves are kind of meaningless. But more important, you know, markets are forward-looking, so a company can beat its earnings expectations for the previous quarter. Quarter, but if it gives any guidance on the future that sales are going to slow down, blah blah blah, maybe the CEO just had a tone in his voice on the conference call that made <laughs> investors a little anxious, then markets can react, um, you know, in that way. So. I, the, the, the bigger, more important point, though, is I think for any serious investor, both the quarterly earnings themselves and the reaction to quarterly earnings shouldn't play a big part in your your outlook as an investor. It's just it's a that aspect of investing is I think a game that a lot of short term traders play. And if you are a short term trader, then maybe great, that's what you're looking for. But if you're a long term investor, it's really just noise. What about Edward's question? If the whole market is too overvalued, do you think it's overvalued? Of course, it's overvalued, but that doesn't mean it's going to drop <laughs> tomorrow. I mean, I think for me, overvaluation just means, as a retirement planner, what kind of returns can I expect from my savings yeah. so that I can see how much I'm going to have in 10, 20 years so I know I can retire. See, my only problem with something like that, even though I, in theory I 100% agree with it, is that every calculation that says when the market is valued at X, then over the subsequent 10 years it should earn Y, none of those have a good track record. You can look backwards and piece together and have like a, like a hindsight is 2020 version vision of it. But every investor that has these fancy models that say, look, since the market is overvalued, I should do X with my money. Their actual returns, like not back-tested on the chalkboard, but their actual returns that they earn investors are, are terrible. Right. So, I, I agree with you in theory, but I think it gets dangerous when investors say, because the mar- you know stocks trade at 22 times earnings, I'm going to sell everything, because that tells me they're overvalued. Right. That's the tricky part. But from a retirement planning perspective, and as long-time listeners know, I love my retirement calculators, mm-hmm. you have to put in an assumption for what you are going to earn. And when the market is highly valued, you should not expect to get that that historical 10% over the rest of your life. Yeah. I would say you put in closer to 5 or 6%. Hopefully you're wrong in the, in the terms that you get upside surprise. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to count on double digit returns from the stock market at this point to bail you out of your retirement. Yeah. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. 
great idea is obviously the first step in the path to success, but what if that idea can easily be copied by someone else? As Morgan Housel writes in a recent column for the Collaboration Fund, which we all just learned all about, the key to business and investing success isn't finding an advantage, it's about having a sustainable advantage. So Morgan is here today to talk about five ways that you can maintain a competitive edge, or that companies can maintain a competitive edge, in business, investing, I don't know. Anywhere you want an edge. Stuff. Everybody gets an edge. <laughs> you get an edge, and you get an edge, <laughs> and you get an edge. Five ways. Five ways to do it. So, uh, before we break it down, why did you decide to write about this topic? Well, I think it's important for every one, for every investor or every business that is trying to actively compete against other people. So that's not every investor, but if you are an active investor, I think you should be able to coherently answer the question: What is my edge? What can I do better? Then, if not everyone else, what can I do better than most people? And if you can't honestly answer that question, I think that's that's a, that's a that's a flag that you should you should try to overcome. Because obviously, if you're if you're in a competitive business, and basically all businesses are competitive, yeah. you know. And I, I I found the reason I wrote the column is because I found if you ask people that simple question, businesses, CEOs, investors, a lot of times they struggle to answer it. Not because maybe they don't have an edge, but because they haven't thought about it and articulated it. So I just wanted to sit down and say, like, what are some of the most common sustainable sources of competitive advantage? And I made the point that intelligence is not one of them. And again, because that is a lot of people's answers when you say, what is your edge? Like, well, I'm really smart or my team is really smart. They think that's why they're going to do better. And I just think it's so clear that in investing and in business, intelligence is a commodity these days. Mm. Like, there are so many smart people out there, brilliant people who are looking at the same numbers as you are. Mm -hmm. So, if your edge is you think, I'm just going to be smarter than everyone else, that's a difficult edge to hold on to. So, I want to come up with, like, what are some other things that are not just edges, but sustainable edges that you can probably hold on to over time? All right. Well, let's get into them. The first one is the ability to learn faster than your competition. Yeah, I think in both markets and in business, things are always changing and adapting and evolving. And if you can if you can learn from those changes and adapt quicker than everyone else, that itself is an edge. And the one example that I use in this is like you see companies like Sears and Kodak that have not adapted. They have not learned and they're trying to solve 1980s problems today. Like they just haven't learned very quickly, and you have you have other companies that do just when the market changes, the market shifts, they learn incredibly quickly. I think Facebook purchasing Instagram was a really smart example of a company that just learned very quickly and learned faster than than some of its competitors uh, of where the market was shifting. Same with Facebook when it purchased WhatsApp. You know that was like viewing where the market was going and learning from others in that industry before they got to it. If you can just learn faster about where things are going, mm-hmm. faster than your competitors, that's an advantage. And that doesn't have anything to do with being smarter than your competitor. It's just, it's just looking at where the world is going and just trying to learn from it quicker, embracing reality faster than your competitors. All right, number two is the ability to empathize with customers more than your competition. Yeah, this is something that I've I've seen a lot of. Uh, CEOs, and I think this is especially true as economy as the economy kind of bifurcates with income inequality, that you have CEOs and managers or entire companies that don't can't empathize with their customers because they are so far removed from the product or the experience that their that their company is is targeting for those cups for those customers. So I give the example in the article of like, how many times do you think the CEO of Delta Airlines or United Airlines? I don't want to pick on anyone. 
has been uh, booted from a flight or had their bags lost. Or like, even like, flown like coach. Never, like, or, yeah. or, or flown coach and had their knees shoved up into their chest because right. they're 6'3 <laughs> sitting in coach or something. Probably never. Like It's hard to truly empathize with the experience that your customers are going through when you are so far removed from that. And the other example I gave is, how often do you think the CEO of McDonald's goes to McDonald's because that's truly what they wanted to eat that day. Not because, like, oh, I'm the CEO, I need to go try the product and you know, make an appearance, but truly, like, they're driving down the street and they're hungry and they say, I need to go to McDonald's. If you don't, if you can't fully empathize or, or just put yourself in your customer's shoes to the extent that, you know, there's always going to be a disconnect between the product that you think you're delivering and the actual experience that your customers are, are experiencing. In a previous episode, we talked about the rise of artificial intelligence. And one of the points, was along the lines of what you said earlier, and that intelligence is essentially going to be a commodity at mm-hmm. some point. Computers are, are ultimately smarter than we are. Mm-hmm. To the extent we all want to keep our jobs, we have to focus on things that computers can't do. And one of them empathy. is empathy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Completely. 100%. Right. Number three, the ability to communicate more effectively than your competition. I think this is really important in financial services, and it's something that the Motley Fool has, I was gonna say, this has done like the since, Fool. since day one, yeah. and is really kind of the essence of the Motley Fool, was the ability to take something that is complicated and intimidating, like investing, and just communicate it better um, than, than other financial advisors or brokers who might be out there. I think there are a lot of really smart financial advisors out there who could add, add a really good service for their clients, but they can't communicate very well with their clients. There's something I mentioned in the piece, which is for a lot of financial advisors, it's hard for customers, especially if they are novices to investing, to distinguish between confusion on the customer's end and obfuscation on the financial advisor's end. Mm, yeah. so if the financial advisor is using big terms and lingo that the, the customer doesn't understand, from the customer's point of view, it's hard to, 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 to distinguish between do I just not know what he's talking about, or is he trying to pull the wool over my eyes? So I think you see this a lot. A great example besides The Motley Fool is Josh Brown of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Mm-hmm. Josh and Barry and Michael Batnick, all those guys, which are big on Twitter, Josh is on CNBC a lot, their competitive edge as financial advisors is the fact that they are incredible bloggers, mm-hmm. and they can communicate their vision to the world in ways that anyone can understand. Someone who has no experience in investing can read Josh's blog and say, I know what you're doing. And I trust you because I've read so much of what you're doing. I know how you see the world. I know how you invest. So I'm comfortable going to you as a client just because of that. Just because of your ability to effectively communicate what you're doing, that sets up a new level of trust. And I think especially in financial services, that's, that is a sustainable competitive advantage. It's sustainable because it's so difficult for people to do. Effective communication is, is, is a really difficult thing. Uh, for uh, that I think is difficult to teach some people. So if you're able to do it well, that's a, an edge that will stick with you. Yeah. And people like Josh and Barry, they also, I feel, speak with a confidence that a lot of people sometimes lack in finance, too. Like that obfuscation yeah. that you talk about, that's where people resort to when they really don't know what they are talking about mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Right. Whereas Josh and Barry are just like, this is how it is. This is my strong opinion. Take it or leave it. I'm too busy. I'm moving on to the next Exactly. Thing. No problem saying, I don't know. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're not going to try to BS their way through a question. If you yeah. ask them a question that they don't know, they'll tell you. And that itself is a communication, I think, tactic that sets up trust. Yeah. All right. Number four, the willingness to fail more than your competition. Yeah. This is especially true for businesses. I, I think it's probably true for investors as well, but for especially large corporations, the inability to want to do anything that doesn't 
equate to short-term profits or instant profits, I should say. They tend to punt. They don't want to fail because individual managers view it as career risk. Companies view it as, oh, I'm not going to make my quarterly earnings. So the inability or the, the undesire, I should say, to take risk kind of sets them up for stagnation. And in a world that's always adapting and, and evolving into something new, if you are a company that's unwilling to take risk, you're probably going to get left behind. I think two amazing examples of companies that fail better than anyone else are Google and Amazon. Amazon in particular is, in, in, in my view, I think Amazon is probably the most impressive company of the last 50 years, maybe the last century. Just absolutely staggering what Jeff Bezos has been able to accomplish, especially just in the last 10 years. And the root of that, I think, is his ability to take risk. And not just take risk, but his willingness to fail. Things like the Kindle Fire Phone, which by any definition was just a disastrous failure. Like, hardly sold any phones. Even when they were trying to sell them for a dollar, they couldn't sell them. Mm-hmm. Total failure. And when Jeff, you know, on conference calls, and granted, it's, it's easier to do this when the rest of the company is, is super successful. I was going to say, it's easy to fail when you have a massive when, when war have, chest. When, when you have a lot of, but that goes both ways. The reason they have a massive war chest is because they've been willing to fail, and that willingness let them find other business segments that ended up doing incredibly well. If you're never willing to fail, you're not going to find that one or two seg- one of those segments that does really well. But it was when Bezos talked about the Fire Phone, you know, he was I think most managers would say, "Oh, well, the market moved against us, our suppliers didn't, you know, they would try to sw- either sweep it under the rug or pass blame." And Bezos's comment, this isn't for this this isn't verbatim, but it's pretty close to what he said. He said, um, "If you think the Kindle Fire Phone was a failure, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> and he said, he said, he said, we're going to have much bigger failures, I guarantee it. That's just his mentality. And I think because he has that mentality, Amazon is going to keep finding new business segments that are incredibly profitable because they're willing to go out and take the risk that's needed to find those things. You've gone from the world of The Motley Fool that looks at publicly traded companies to where you are now looking at privately held companies, or at least private equity. And there's a big debate now about why is it that companies are more reluctant to go public or at least wait longer. Is part of it this whole having to meet quarterly earnings? I think that's that's part of it. But the, the rebuttal would be that as companies uh, grow and they're kind of in the private equity space, so they're not startups or established companies, but they're privately owned, those companies too face Earnings pressure. Maybe it's not quarterly, but maybe it's annually. Like it's not. It's not a distinct difference. There's often a viewpoint sometimes that oh, if you're a private company, you don't ever have to you know make your numbers again, and that's just not the case. Private owners of of stocks want their companies to perform, and sooner rather than later. So I'd say the pressure is reduced when you're a, a private company, but it doesn't go away. Uh, I, but I, I think one of the, the the bigger points of why so many more companies are staying. Uh, private and the big statistic is there is that there are half as many publicly traded companies today as they were in 1995. The number of publicly traded companies peaked in 1995. I think it was 7,300, and now there's like 3,400. So it's a huge reduction in the past 20 years. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I think it's it's expensive to be a, a public company. You have the spotlight on you all the time, where the 24-7 news media is always going to be seeing what's going on and wanting to write the big headline-grabbing story of what's going on with the company's culture. Like what's go- So, there's just, the more public information you have, the more just kind of burdensome spotlight you have on you. Uh, and and you know, as you alluded to, too, the, the, the quarterly earnings race is, for a public company can be really difficult. I think the big reason is now that there is just so much private money out there, the companies don't need to go public. 
There's just no mm-hmm. need to do it. 20 years ago, there is no way that Uber uh, or Lyft could stay private like they have now. There, there just wouldn't be that much. There wasn't that much money in venture capital or private equity that would fund them to this point. They would have had to go public when they were still a really small company. But now a company like Uber, which is you know, valued at $70 billion in its last round, can stay private and can keep raising as much money as it needs to from private investors. So there's just no need to go public. So you know, there, there's, no, there's no reason for a lot of companies to go through the rigmarole and the hassle of being a public company if there's no tangible benefit of doing so. And that is, I think, only growing. The amount of money in private markets is growing so much that that trend, uh, I, th- I think, will continue. And something that's happened just this year is SoftBank, big, uh, big financial company based out of Japan, raised a $100 billion venture capital fund this year. Hmm. And to put that in context, $100 billion is more than all of the IPO proceeds raised from 2010 to 2012. And that's just one fund. Mm. So having that much money in private markets just means that big companies like Uber and Lyft and Airbnb don't need to go public. Got to. All right. And the last one is the willingness to wait longer than your competition. Yeah, I think this is especially true for individual investors, but it spans a lot of fields, including business and just people's career and whatnot. And to me, it's the most tangible and the most realistic competitive edge that an individual investor can have. Because if you're an individual investor and you're trying to compete against the intelligence of Goldman Sachs or supercomputers, it's that, that's just not something I think you can realistically say, I'm smarter than the analysts at Goldman Sachs. But if you can say, the analysts at Goldman Sachs are only willing to wait for six months, and I'm willing to wait for five years. That's an edge, and I think that's it's really the only edge that exists for individual investors um, these days, where the the uh, the parsing of information is has been competed so much that it's hard for any individual investor, no matter who you are, to have an informational edge on anyone else. But the, the, if, if you can have a time horizon edge and just be a little more patient than everyone, that is something that I think superior returns will accrue to you over time, over a long period of time. Like Waiting longer might mean that you need to have a 10-year or a 20-year time horizon. But if you can truly have that, I think good things are almost certainly to come to you. What would you say is your own personal sustainable source of competitive advantage? What's your edge? I would say as a writer, it's explaining compli- complicated things in a simple way. That's what I try to do. Yeah, I would say you're good. I would definitely say that's your sustainable competitive it's hard. edge. One of them. You're but good I, at I it. I try to do. It. Thanks. You're good at it, bro. How about you? Uh, this is so cliche, but I I would just say that I'm willing to work hard. Mm-hmm. So I put a lot of effort into a lot of things I do, and I try to do lots of different things. One thing that I think is I, I was at in Florida over the summer where I grew up and we drove by where the old blockbuster video used to be and I pointed out to my kids it's now a bank mm-hmm. and I was explaining to them like you cannot have as a business or as a person just one skill just one thing because at some point the world is going to change and not, people aren't going to value that so I would say my competitive skills I'm willing to try different things that's good that is good. That was not one of the five options that Morgan laid out here for you. You no, did. Off. I have to say with one of his. No, you can come up with your no. own. I no, guess. that's good though. I, I I might add that as a six to the article. All right, Rick. Do you have an answer? Patience, and I don't hold grudges. That's a good one. That's yeah. why um, that's why this show works. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ouch! But you're also adaptable. I mean, when when you joined the Fool, you were doing tech work essentially, right? Design work. Yeah, design, front-end development, yep. Yeah. You've had several jobs here at The Motley Fool. You're also very adaptable. Yeah. 
ready for the next one. <laughs> this, is, this is getting awkward. Wow. Sorry, that was not a dig at you, actually. This is, this is my favorite part of my job. You know that. And you, Allison, Ouch. what's your competitive advantage? I think that I am, and I don't know if this is my competitive sustainable advantage, but I think I'm pretty good at getting a bunch of different people together to make things. I'd agree so. with that. I was going to say, you, you, yeah. you've got awesome people skills. That's really... Yeah, yeah. I, can, I can rally a group towards, mm-hmm. a, towards a cause. Yep. So... I think that's computers will not be able to replace you. That's what we're saying here. I hope not. I hope not. All right, Morgan, you want to stick around and test your smarts when it comes to epic fails? No, I'm good. Okay. You have to. (laughs) I'm locking the door. Don't let them out. Thanks to Harry's for supporting Motley Fool Answers. By taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers quality razor blades at half the price. Harry's is so confident you'll love the blades, they're giving you a free trial set for free. Just cover $3 shipping. Bro, tell me what kind of a bargain that is for the great shave you experienced. It was an outstanding shave. It really was. I have to say it was the closest shave I ever had. I, I have to be honest about it. You actually it. do look somewhat well-shaven well today. <laughs> I know, it's rare. Sometimes but yes. you look like you woke up next to a dumpster, and I mean that with affection. <laughs> That's my competitor. Advantage. <laughs> Catch people by surprise. I can sleep anywhere. <laughs> you thought I was homeless, but I'm not. To get your free trial set and look less homeless, it includes a razor handle, five blade cartridge, and shave gel. Go to harrys.com slash fool right now. That's harrys.com slash fool. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. The bus is here, boys, and I'm taking you back to school. The School of Hard Knocks for lessons on failure, courtesy of some of the greatest minds of our time. So let's see how well you can do with our quiz. Who wants to go first? I'm ready. All right. First class is English. In 2009, Jeff Bezos issued a public apology after creeping the heck out of some Kindle users when, in a very Big Brother-esque move, the company remotely deleted copies of Animal Farm and this dystopian classic. No idea. I passed the mic to bro. Fahrenheit 451. A very Big Brother-esque move, this dystopian classic. 1984. Rick got it. Rick's not even playing. I was going to say Fountainhead. So Jeff said that they were trying to Jeff because I'm on a first name basis with him. <laughs> Big J. Big J. J Dog said they were trying to remove illegally sold copies of the books, and suddenly deleting them from people's Kindles was quote stupid, thoughtless, and painfully out of line with our principles. More willing to fail. There you go. There you go. All right, spelling. Are Uh-oh. you ready? It's our little spelling bee. All right. I'll, I'll send this to you first. Spell the name of Reed Hastings' most famous blunder in 2011 when he decided to spin off the digital side of Netflix from the DVD delivery side. You got to spell it. I'm going to go. You're going to go. Yeah, you, no, I'll pass or, this one to okay, Morgan. This one's getting passed back to Morgan. Q U I K S T E R? You said Q U I K S T E R? I think, yeah. yeah. Very close. Okay. But no. QW. No ER, just R at the end. No, also wrong. Bro? Just replace the U with the W. Yeah, so it's awful. Q W I K S T E R. Are there any other words in the English language that are QW? Quickster. Yeah, right. The stock took a major hit, in fact, 25%, and the company admitted they lost 800,000 subscribers as a result. Of course, in hindsight, this really presented investors with a buy opportunity as the stock is up a bajillion percent since. I didn't have time to look it up exactly, but trust me, it's up a lot. It's close to a bajillion. It's close to a bajillion. It rounds to a bajillion. All right, social studies. Who wants to go first? I'll do it. Google co-founder Sergey Brin admitted that it was probably a mistake for him to work on what failed Google product because he's, quote, not a very social person and kind of a weirdo. 
<laughs> the Google Talk, I guess. No. I would say, mm-hmm. say Google Glasses. No. Google Plus. Yes, oh. Rick got that one. Google Plus. Fun fact: Google planned to buy the popular social, oh, well, at the time, popular social networking site Friendster back in 2003, oh, I and offered 30 million, but Friendster snubbed the. This offer. Also, a fun fact: my husband and I are together today because of Friendster. Oh, all right, so yeah. nice. Wow, yeah. you're the only people ever to do that. Yeah. Well, thanks. Also goes to Ralph Wiggum, Adidas, and Marty Zager's annual Super Bowl party. So maybe I'll tell you the story one day. <laughs> Me fail English? That's impossible. That's literally. What? I know. Okay, you already know the story. All right, science. <laughs> you ready for science? This is the last question. All right. We haven't gotten any of them right so far. I know we suck. Rick's doing okay. Well. Let's finish with the father of invention himself, Thomas Edison. He had over a thousand patents in the U.S. and invented the phonograph and the motion picture camera. As he maybe did or maybe didn't say, of his struggles to invent the incandescent light bulb, I have not failed. I have just found a thousand ways that didn't work. Fill in the blank. I owe my success to the fact that I never had a what in my workroom. Hmm. A bed. This is I, there's a reason why I said bed, by the way. No, maybe it wasn't Edison. I can't remember. Anyways, go ahead. What's your guess? I don't, I don't know. No idea. A desk. The answer is a clock. Oh. He said 75 of us worked 20 hours every day and slept only four hours and thrived on it. Gotcha. Here's another fun fact. His hearing was really bad. What? His hearing was so bad, in fact... <laughs> Yeah, Morgan will give you a pity laugh for that one. His hearing was so bad that, according to a historian cited in the New York Times, that Edison trained his second wife, Mina, to secretly tap out conversations in Morse code on his knee during dinner parties. That sounds fun. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like an excuse to me. So the reason the reason I said bad, and I may be wrong that this wasn't Edison, but he would he would brainstorm by sitting in a desk holding a metal ball or a ball in his hand over a metal dish and he would think about the problem and he'd start to fall asleep but when you start to fall asleep you know you kind of get weird thoughts mm-hmm. it would kind of cause him to brainstorm and then he'd fall asleep he'd drop the ball it, hit with the, it would hit the bowl oh, and he would wake up he'd wow. be like oh did I have any good thoughts there and if he did he'd write it down that's a really cool idea yeah now I'll have to look up and see if that's actually true but it I, sounds it's good. one of those stories where even if it's not true I don't care it's yes, cool. exactly. <laughs> I don't care if it's not true. I like it. Just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it's not true. That's right. true. All right, Morgan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me back. Uh, absolutely. And we're actually going to have you back here in a few more weeks. Uh, so that'll be great, too. Great. Look forward to it. All right. Uh, I have some postcards to talk about. Sergeant Mike sent us our first postcard from Florida. Can you believe it took us Yay, that long Florida. to get a postcard from Florida? He says his fa- we are his favorite podcast with Motley Fool Money coming in second. Uh. <laughs> Elizabeth sent us a card from Lucca, Italy, where she writes, many of the buildings are a patchwork of architectural history because the, the, um, the people are so frugal there that they'd rather alter existing buildings than pay, pay to replace them. Oh, True nice. fools. Nice. Uh, Rod and Judy sent us our first card from Montenegro. They say it's a must-see location. And Rich suggests that we tape... Uh, an episode of the show uh, focused on chocolate from Hershey, PA, which is where he took his family and they had a great time. That's a great idea. Mm -hmm. So thank you everyone who sent in postcards. Please continue to send them in uh, because you know I love them. Our address is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. All right, that's going to do it for today. The show is edited tirelessly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. 